In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Maya Shankar from the podcast A Slight Change of Plans to talk about how change happens, why she made a slight change of plans, and how we as individuals can start thinking about our own changes. Get excited because this is Tiny Leaps, Big Changes. another episode of Tiny Leaps, Big Changes, where I share simple research-backed strategies you can use to get more out of your life. My name is Greg Clunas, and uh, this is th- this was a fun conversation for me to have. I don't do too many interviews on this show, but every time I do, I somehow manage to find the most amazing, inspiring, insightful, educated guests to bring on. And honestly, it's fun for me. I get to just sit down and speak to people so much smarter than me, people who can bring real knowledge to the conversation. And I just get to sit back and ask whatever's on my mind. It's honestly a ton of fun. And This episode is no different. This was such a blast of an interview to do. It might be one of my favorites to date. I sat down with Dr. Maya Shankar. She is currently the Senior Director of Behavioral Economics at Google. And previously, she served as a Senior Advisor in the Obama White House, where she founded and served as Chair of the White House's Behavioral Science Team and as the first Behavioral Science Advisor to the United Nations under Ban Ki-moon. On her podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, a production of Pushkin Industries, she aims to hold intimate conversations that give an unvarnished look into how people navigate changes of all kinds and use that change to ultimately grow. Maya uncovers little-known personal stories and reflections from familiar names like Hillary Clinton, Tiffany Haddish, and Casey Musgraves, and extraordinary stories from real-life inspirations like a young cancer researcher in the throes of a stage 4 diagnosis, and and a black jazz musician who convinced hundreds of KKK members to leave the Klan. In this conversation, we dive into her journey so far, what inspired her own change of plans from a star violinist to a cognitive scientist, and how to think about your own potential changes. And she does such great work on this podcast. So I do have to mention this is a sponsored interview. Pushkin reached out to me because they thought that you guys, the listeners of this show, would get a ton of value from the podcast. And I got to tell you, I agree. I went through and pretty much binged uh, a, a few of the episodes because it's so good. Maya does a phenomenal job bringing on guests, making them comfortable, and getting them to share incredible stories of their own change and their own perseverance when dealing with that change. So I know you're going to love it. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to play a very quick clip from a recent episode of hers titled The Science of Change. I super recommend this one. If you're looking for a podcast that gets into it, You've got to listen to this particular episode. I'm going to play that clip, and then we're going to go straight into my conversation with Dr. Maya Shankar. Pushkin. My research group has studied this phenomenon where at the beginning of sort of a new chapter in your life, you are more motivated and likely to make a change. That's Dr. Katie Milkman 
author of the book, How to Change. Moments when you, you know, leave college and you shift identities and take on a new role or when you become a parent, those moments, they feel like new beginnings and chapter breaks in our lives and they free us from the baggage that we had before. A lot of people who do make big change are looking at moments that feel like breaking points and doing it. Katie Milkman's a professor of behavioral economics at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also a friend and collaborator. We got to work together on some projects when I was in the Obama White House. And she happens to be an expert on change. As you know, this show is all about how people navigate the big changes in life. We're talking swing for the fences, change your life type changes. What Katie's research has taught me over the years is that small tweaks to our mindset and daily behaviors can actually inspire big change within ourselves. I've personally been using insights from Katie's research in my own life for a while now. In this special episode, Katie and I dive deep into the science of change. I hope our conversation will leave you with some valuable tips to help you approach change differently in your own life. I'm Maya Shankar, and this is A Slight Change of Plans. I was curious to know how you got into the topic of change. Honestly, I was in love with behavioral science, but it took me a little while to figure out that I wanted to focus on change. And what happened is I went to a seminar over at the med school. And there's a bunch of brilliant people over there thinking about behavioral science and medicine. How can we help patients make better decisions? How can we improve the decisions of doctors as well? And I was in this seminar and a graph went up, which normally doesn't change your life, but this graph changed my life. The graph just showed a breakdown of how many premature deaths are due to different causes from, you know, accidents to uh, environment to daily decisions. And 40% of premature deaths turn out to be the result of decisions that we can change on a daily basis about things like whether or not we drink or smoke, what we eat, whether or not we're physically active, we buckle our seatbelts. Those kinds of decisions accumulate more than I could have ever imagined. I had just no idea of the magnitude. And when I saw that and realized, you know, the tools of behavioral science could be applied to improve health outcomes and health decisions, I could have this enormous impact. And then then I sort of started thinking like, okay, well, if it matters that much with health, it's sort of obvious that it would accumulate in areas like savings and education. Similarly, even if I've never seen an exact breakdown of, of that sort. So that really just got me excited about the potential to use this thing that I found so interesting, so exciting and fun to actually have an impact. So I'm sitting here with Dr. Maya Shankar. Maya, how are you today? I'm doing so well. It's great to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and speak with us. Uh, so we just heard a clip from your phenomenal, phenomenal podcast. Uh, it was an interview, uh, really more of a conversation uh, with a, a friend of yours on the science of change. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that episode went through? Yeah, definitely. Um, so for my podcast, The Slight Change of Plans, um, the focus is to hear from people who have navigated extraordinary changes in their lives and learn things from them, right? Like generate insights about how it is that other people have navigated change so that 
you know, listeners can go back to their own lives thinking differently about change. And we hear from amazing people on this season of A Slight Change of Plans, people like Casey Musgraves and Tiffany Haddish and Hillary Clinton and Tommy Caldwell, and then from folks that are just living their lives and have experienced incredible things. And so we hear these incredible narratives from people, um, but I wanted to make sure that we had a few episodes on the show that focused exclusively on the science of change. So the episode you're referencing um, is a conversation I had with my good friend, Katie Milkman. She's an expert on the science of change and how it is that we can inspire change in our own lives. Um, because change is a really tough thing to do, right? It can fill us with lots of anxiety, uh, feelings of trepidation, cognitive dissonance. Um, you know, we tend to have a, a preference for the status quo. And so uh, taking that new leap or, you know, navigating an unexpected or unwanted experience can be very daunting. And so I wanted to tap her expertise to figure out what it is we can learn from the science about, you know, how we can inspire small changes in our lives that in aggregate can lead, can lead to big changes. And then I also interviewed Adam Grant on the science of how we can change other people's minds and our own minds about really important uh, salient topics right now. Yeah, and both of those episodes, both Katie Milkman and Adam Grant are phenomenal, phenomenal conversations. I highly recommend anyone listening to this, go check them out. Uh, but I love that you're doing this podcast to just in general. And, and I'll tell you why. Uh, anyone listening to this show knows that I started this podcast uh, close to six years ago, primarily because I felt like there were very real practical things about uh, a lot of the advice in the personal development industry and, and so on and so forth that could be applied to people's lives and could create change. But there was also a lot of, um, for lack of a better word, bullshit. Uh, and, and so the fact that you who you, you have an actual background in the world of behavioral and cognitive sciences, you've you've studied this, you've labored for it, you have connections with other people who've done the same and know what they're talking about. And now you're bringing that to uh, the, the podcasting world and to the, the communication to, to regular people like me, like all of my listeners. That's such a powerful asset for this space. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what led you to start the show? And just in general, who is Maya Shankar? <laughs> well, first of all, it's so kind of you to say that. Um, in many ways, yeah, I, I think creating a slight change of plans has been my way of marrying my scientific background, but then also being humbled by my scientific background and realizing that not, not all big answers surrounding change actually exist in a textbook. You know, when we're going through these really transformative experiences where we come at the other end questioning things like our identity and our sense of purpose and our place in the world. You can't just go to chapter four and, you know, re read page 15 and, or whatever and hope that you're going to figure it out. So my hope with this podcast is to allow people's stories, right, the real experiences from their lives to give us new ways of thinking about change, right, helping us understand as people and as scientists, um, what the right questions are to even ask in the first place about change. And I will tell you, Greg, like uh, I, I was already humbled in, in creating this podcast in the first place, but my guests have really humbled me. They've helped me see change through a totally different lens than I had when I first started the podcast. And I'm so grateful that they were generous enough to have these conversations with me because it's really been opening my mind and I hope also uh, listeners' minds. Um, so you asked, you know, 
who is Maya? And I would have given you a very different answer when I was uh, a youngster. Um, when I when I was six years old, my mom went up to our attic and brought down my grandmother's violin, which she had brought with her all the way from India when she immigrated to this country um, in the 70s. And I just took to it. I mean, I was captivated by the instrument. My mom says she never had to tell me to practice, which was amazing because obviously <laughs> she had to tell us four kids to do lots of things. But she says, you know, I never had to tell you to practice. I knew there was a true passion in you. And when I was nine years old, um, things started to pick up in intensity because I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music's pre-college division and was very fortunately accepted. And that began um, weekly trips from Connecticut to New York every single Saturday. So I would get up with my mom at 4.30 in the morning. We get on the Metro North train. Uh, we go to we get to Juilliard. Um, and then I'd spend probably 10 or so hours in classes all day long um, before coming home, you know, very late. And I think, you know, looking back, I realized, wow, you know, that commitment reveals just how much I was in love with this craft and just how much I wanted it to be a part of my future. So I think, you know, by the time I was in high school, I thought 100%, I definitely want to be a concert violinist. I, I want to see if I can go pro. And I got the ultimate vote of confidence because, you know, as you can imagine, when you're in a highly competitive environment like Juilliard, you can fall prey to a lot of imposter thoughts and mm. feelings of insecurity. Um, but one day, uh, Itzhak Perlman, uh, who's obviously, you know, in my mind anyway, the best violinist of our time, uh, he invited me to be his private violin student. And that that confidence boost allowed me to see, okay, maybe I really do have what it takes. And so I, I just got on the speed train and my identity was first and foremost being a violinist, right? This was the thing that got me up every morning. It was what I spent my free time thinking about. I would rush home from school and practice. Um, and then really suddenly, you know, I was at summer music camp and early one morning I woke up and I overstretched some tendons in my hand on a single note, uh, tore those tendons. And doctors soon after told me that my career was over and I could never play the violin again. And oh so gosh. that was a you know, a profound shift for me in my life, because I don't know about you, but certainly for me, I'd never asked big existential questions about my life until this point. I just kind of lived as kids sometimes do. Maybe not this gen this next generation. They're very precocious. But certainly for me, I was just like, <laughs> violin's amazing and it feels so important and I'm doing it and I love it. But then when I lost the thing, it forced me to examine who I was fundamentally um, and mm. what I was without the instrument. And, um, you know, there's this interesting research in cognitive science called uh, around this concept called identity foreclosure. And it refers to the idea that adolescents in particular, but certainly this is a psychology that can follow people into adulthood, can get very fixed in a in a strict identity early on in life. And it can prevent them from exploring other avenues and paths and other ways of seeing themselves in the world. And in many ways, I feel like, well, I'd certainly fallen prey to identity foreclosure up until age 15. But then when I was suddenly robbed of the instrument um, and forced to explore these other paths, I think it taught me a very valuable lifelong lesson around change, which is the importance of seeing my identity as quite malleable, um, as open, as dynamic, as flexible. And that has served me well as I've navigated many twists and turns uh, following that episode. So here's what I'm curious about. You, it, it seems like you've lived two different lives. Uh, maybe from your perspective, it feels like even more. But you grew up as 
this star violinist all the potential in the world. This one moment happens and it completely derails your entire plan. At what point do you decide, I really want to move into the cognitive and behavioral sciences? Like, what was that transition like? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question, especially because I think, you know, when you just read someone's CV, it can seem like life took this beautifully linear path. And, you know, you knew all the right answers at all the right times. And, you know, we transitioned effortlessly. And of course, that's not what actually happened. So I do think in general, it's so important to dig into these inflection points and understand how every person has navigated these pivots in their lives. So for me, I mean, I think initially I was absolutely despondent, totally devastated. And I was fighting the doctors for so long, right? Like I was that impatient, uh, recalcitrant teenager who was like, I'll show you, you know, um, and I totally didn't show them. Um, the pain kept getting worse. And I, and I eventually just had to, you know, accept, accept my reality. Um, but I fought it for a long time. And then, you know, I struggled to have an open mind because I think in many ways, I was just so spoiled by the violin, right? Like what a rare gift it is to have in your childhood, something that you feel so singularly focused on and passionate mm-hmm. about. And you know, as an adult, I realized like that's a really hard thing to stumble upon. And I was given that gift from a very young age. Um, And so it took me a while um, to even be open to the idea of exploring other things. And uh, one summer, it was actually the summer before college, in my counterfactual life as a musician, I was supposed to be in China touring uh, with my fellow musician classmates. But instead, I was at home in Connecticut, helping my parents clean out their basement. Um, as a dutiful daughter does. So, you know, equally cool summer experience. Um, and I, I stumbled upon a book on the science of language learning. It was, it was all about how it is that we develop and produce language. And I was, I was stunned by this book because I, I was stunned reading even the first 20 pages because in my own life up until this point, I had completely taken for granted my ability to engage with language. And yet this book showed me that if you pull the curtain back, language is the result of incredibly sophisticated cognitive machinery. Um, And in a moment, you just become in awe of the human mind, right? Like you realize, holy crap, like if that's if that's what's behind language, I can't even imagine what's behind, you know, higher level decision making and, you know, the people out there who could do complex math like I can't. But you know, my physicist dad can, um, or people, you know, what, what it means to fall in love. Like I, I, I just started asking all these questions about the mind and my imagination lit up. And, um, I thought, you know, is there a way to study this? And mm-hmm. I remember looking through the course catalog for the place I was going to college at, and they did have a cognitive science major. It was very novel at the time. I think only, you know, probably half a dozen schools in the country had one at the time. Um, But a cognitive science major involved taking classes in philosophy, linguistics, neuroscience, computer science, um, neurobiology, anthropology. Uh, Essentially, you're you're examining the human mind and asking a fundamental question about it, but you're taking an interdisciplinary perspective where you call upon insights from multiple disciplines um, in order to find answers. And that was a very rich learning experience for me. I got to... um, 
work in, so my, my undergrad mentor, uh, someone you might be familiar with, Laurie Santos, she has a very successful, successful class at Yale on happiness um, and, and a podcast to go along with it. She was my undergrad mentor and I got to do research on monkeys in her lab. And um, I got to study vision science in undergrad. And, um, you know, for the next basically 10 years, I was preparing to be an academic. So I did my undergrad in COGSI. I did my PhD um, in sensory perception, which is basically just figuring out, you know, how does, how does vision and audition and olfaction, tactile sensations interact in the mind? And then I did my postdoc um, in the science of decision making. I'd love to hear uh, why you, you either chose or, or were sort of moved on a different path, if you're willing to share. Of course, yeah. I was preparing to be an academic, and um, but then, you know, my life took a, a different turn from there. Um, and essentially what happened is I was, I still remember I was in the basement of an fMRI laboratory. So I was conducting brain scans at the time, trying to understand people's decision-making prowess and what goes on behind the scenes in the mind. And this guy came in, it was probably hour four of doing these scans. And within seconds, I was peering into his mind. And I remember thinking, hmm, given my personality, I feel like the order of operations is a bit off here. Like, I don't know his full name. I don't know if he has kids. I don't know what his favorite ice cream flavor is. Like, I just knew in that moment, I needed a more social environment and kind of a team oriented environment. And so there was this big question, though, which is like, what does a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience do other than become an academic, right? And and, and, the, and the path was not uh, paved at that moment. So I ended up calling uh, my undergrad advisor, Laurie Santos, and asking her for advice. And um, she said, you know, Maya, I heard about this amazing work that's happening in the White House right now. This is during the Obama era, um, in which they're using insights from behavioral science, from cognitive science, from behavioral economics um, to help enroll low income students into the free lunch program. And essentially what the challenge we were facing was, Greg, was that, you know, the government offers this incredible program to give free or reduced price lunches to low income kids. But millions of kids were still going hungry at school every day. And the reason mm -hmm. is that the application process was extremely burdensome. It was really taxing families, especially single parent families. Um, and there was a stigma associated with, um, you know, signing your kids up for a public benefits program. And mm -hmm. so what the government did is it used the power of defaults uh, by changing it from an opt in program to an opt out program. So now by using administrative data, they were able to automatically enroll all eligible kids. And now parents only had to take a proactive step to unenroll their kids, not to enroll them. And as, as a result of this small behavioral economics tweak, basically overnight, 12 and a half million kids were now eating lunch at school every day. Wow. And I remember being so blown away um, by the emotional resonance of this story and thinking, wow, this is exactly what I would want to do in the ideal world. Um, but there were no formal jobs to apply for. And so I essentially had to pitch the White House on creating a dedicated role for a behavioral scientist. So I ended up sending a cold email to Cass Sunstein. He's a co-author of the book Nudge and was also uh, a high-level official in the Obama White House. And I basically said to him, hey, I'm a random postdoc with no public policy experience and really haven't published anything of significance, but would you be willing to help me find opportunities to apply behavioral science in government? And, you know, he was so generous and kind. He wrote back right away, connected me with President Obama's science advisor. And basically a week later, I was interviewing um, 
I was interviewing with senior officials and I was pitching them on the idea of having uh, a behavioral scientist like me come in and try to do audits of different programs and policies to make sure they represented our best understanding of human behavior. You've had such an incredible, I'm, I'm literally sitting here like jaw dropped. Um, you've had an amazing life uh, so far and, and I, I can't wait to see where else you take it. Uh, before we, we move on to my next question, I do want to ask just for my own curiosity back to, uh, your, your roots when you were playing the violin today, are you able to play it all for your own sort of leisure or, or is it just completely, (laughs) it's done? Yeah. I mean, as of a few months ago, I would have said, nope, haven't really played. Um, I, I, what happened with this podcast. So, you know, I have a lot of scar tissue in my hand. It can still be painful to play. I picked it up recreationally a couple times, maybe when I would go visit my parents. Mm. Um, and what happened is that I was, you know, working on the show and creating it. And I was talking with our music engineer and he was writing original music for the show and said, and our producer said, Maya, would you be interested in recording some of that music on the violin? I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't played in what feels like eons. It's insane. Um, but then I, you know, I had my folks bring out my violin. Um, and I actually recorded original music for for part of the soundtrack of A Slight Change of Plans. So really? listeners can hear me playing the violin. I'm I pretty, I sound a little rusty. I'll be the first to admit it, but it was so much fun. Um, I got to play a duet with one of the other producers who's a who's a cellist. And, um, it was, it was such a joyful experience to, to kind of have things go full circle. That is absolutely incredible. Um, and I promise I, no one is going to notice if you're a little rusty. Um, (laughs) okay. So you, you, you just told us this story of, of going through this entire, I'm not even, I don't even know how long process preparing to be an academic deciding at the end, I just don't really necessarily want to do that. How can I use all of this stuff that I've learned? That by itself is a is is a tough decision, right? You you it's one thing when you have your whole life planned out as a violinist and then something outside of your control happens mm. that changes that. It's another thing when you're going down this path and you choose to walk away. That's a really difficult thing for for most people to do. Do you have any thoughts as to why, I don't want to say that it felt easy for you, but why it was something you were able to to make that decision and, and feel confident was the right choice? Yeah, I mean, it's an astute observation. And I think an interesting way of categorizing change in our lives, right, which is unwilled change versus willed change. Um, I think in many ways, I, yeah, it's, it's such a good question. I think in many ways, I realized um from my experience losing the violin when I was 15, that instead of attaching my identity to any specific pursuit that I had, it was better for me to attach my identity to the traits of that thing that I liked so Mm. much and to see if I could replicate some of those traits in other domains. Um, So to put a point on it, you know, in many ways, sure, I love the sound the violin produced. It's a beautiful instrument. But the thing that actually got me ticking was having this ability to forge a very quick emotional connection with my audience uh, almost effortlessly once I began playing those first few passages of, you know, a Beethoven piece. And that's an extraordinary thing, right? You're, you're entering a room, a concert hall, 
full of thousands of strangers. And within moments, you're connecting on some deep emotional level with one another. Mm. And I, I realized, okay, it's people that make me tick right? It's, it's, it's like human connection and exploration and curiosity and trying to figure out the perfect way to craft this passage to try to have optimal emotional resonance in a listener. That really gets me animated about the violin. So when you keep those traits in mind, right? When you, when you realize, oh, these are the features of the pursuit that I like, then you can kind of quickly identify when they're not present um, in the thing you're doing. So as a postdoc, it was really interesting on the one side, I was in fact studying the human mind and I was fascinated by it, but it was lacking that emotional human connection. And that's when I realized, okay, you need to find something that fits the bill um, according to those set of metrics and parameters. And that's when I realized, okay, I need to go to a team-oriented environment. Um, I can't be sitting in a windowless basement um, scanning people's brains all day. This is just not this is not tapping into my true passions. And mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that um, my advisor at the time was happy to give me that push. You know, I think sometimes you need external forces to really get you over that line. Yeah. Um, he asked me point blank. I remember one day he was like, do you even really want to be doing this anymore, Maya? And it was so helpful <laughs> actually to have someone call me out on that. Um, and I was like, no, I don't think I do. And he's like, well, then go explore the world, you know? Um, and I think it is wonderful when you have people in your life and advisors and mentors who are creating safe spaces for, for you to explore other avenues. So I ended up finding that same emotional joy working in government, connecting not just with other government people and friends and colleagues, but with people in in this country who were facing lots of challenges and you can learn so much from their stories. Like I made multiple trips during my time in the white house to Flint, Michigan, and met Mm -hmm. with folks on the ground there during the lead and water crisis and learned such powerful lessons about, you know, I've gone there as a behavioral scientist thinking this was about water safety and disseminating clear information about water safety and combating disinformation. And then after having just a few conversations with people, you realize, okay, the water quality issue is a symptom of a much bigger, deeper mm. uh, societal challenge, which is decades of disenfranchisement among people of color in the community, feeling like they had lost their voice, feeling um, and, and the government had lied to them for decades um, up until this point. And that was the issue, right? Like systemic racism was an issue. And um, you don't always learn those things when you're not connecting directly with with people. And um, I'm finding that same kind of emotional resonance in in creating a slight change of plans, right? I get to, you know, facilitate these incredibly intimate, deep conversations with people who I really admire, whose stories I'm fascinated by. It's like, Hi, Hillary Clinton. I just met you. Um, what was the hardest moment of your life? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> tell me about your insecurities and vulnerabilities. And it's, it's an incredible, um, it's, it's an incredible responsibility that I don't take lightly. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Greg, if you've had a similar experience of trying to unpack why it is you like something and realizing that the traits of that thing can kind of transcend that specific activity and you can find it, find it elsewhere. H- have you had that experience? I have. And I, I've, I've personally struggled with it. I've recognized that it's the the traits of the thing that matters. What I've struggled with and what I've uh, spoken to listeners who've, who've told me they've struggled with is mm. figuring out what exactly those traits are. So I know I love this thing, but and I know that it's not necessarily that thing. I know it's it's the qualities of those things. Mm. But 
being able to list out, well, what are those qualities? That's where I always get stuck. Uh, do you have, I don't know if it, what, what you feel sort of allowed you to identify that for yourself. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I think I fall prey to exactly that same weakness and um, mental block type thing that you're describing. Mm -hmm. I've actually felt like it was being in the wrong positions that taught me lessons about what it is that I uh -huh. actually do like. Um, so sometimes it takes, accepting the wrong job, um, being around people that aren't compatible with you, uh, making mistakes, honestly, uh, thinking you know yourself well when you're making a choice and then realizing that you didn't appreciate all these dimensions of yourself that, it were, that existed, but you weren't aware of them or you weren't willing to acknowledge how important those parts of yourself were. You were trying to resist parts of yourself that just feel inevitable at a certain point. And I think the closer we can get to having a very honest understanding of who we are, the closer we can get to actually finding those passions in life that that really bring us joy. Absolutely. And I love that point that it's through the the, the failures, the wrong turns that you can figure out, you can get that data. Uh, I talk a lot on this show about um, understanding what your situation looks like, what mm. the context around your life looks like. I think one of the biggest issues with the personal development industry is that it's trying to take very complex ideas and making them very generic so that mm -hmm. they can apply to the largest audience possible. But each individual's experience is going to be unique. It's going to be uh, something that they have to sort of figure out how to apply the, the these uh, talking points to in order to get change. And the only way you get that data is to try something and figure out what doesn't work. Because unfortunately, crystal balls don't really work and mm -hmm. we can't see what might be the, the optimal path until we see what all the wrong paths are. Uh, so I absolutely love that. Um, and I, and just one more point. Yeah, really get please. Thinking about this. Um, I think another another trap we can fall into is to identify people in our lives that we really admire and think to ourselves, well, I really admire them and they're doing this thing, right? So from a young age, as I mentioned, I was really taken by Laurie Santos and she's a professor of, of psychology. And I remember thinking, well, I admire her and I admire everything she's become. So, you know, I, I want to be that thing too. Mm -hmm. And like you said, because we are all such different people, um, there is no one size fits all recommendation. And so if there's one thing I've learned from my experience um, that I would want to share with listeners. It's that you can admire lots of people, but you just have to be straightforward about who you are <laughs> and mm -hmm. whether it makes sense for you to try to fit those molds or whether you can actually just take, you know, admire similar to the hobby thing, like traits about them that you want to emulate, but not necessarily the full formula, the full life pr prescription um, that, that they may be living. Absolutely love that. And that actually brings me to, uh, my, my next question here. Um, I think we are all so incredibly different, but as human beings, as being part of the same species living on the same planet during the same time, uh, there are these things that we share and that we can learn from each other. One of the the things I love about your podcast is you've spoken to people of all kinds of backgrounds. You've, you've spoken to academics. You've spoken to uh, people like Hillary Clinton. You've, you've spoken to Tiffany Haddish. You've spoken to, to all of these incredible, incredible people and also a lot of just regular, normal people um, who, who could be your neighbors. And the one thing they all have in common is that they've all had 
something happened in their lives that that sent them in a different direction than they thought they were going. Have you heard in these conversations any sort of connective tissue between who they are as individuals? Is it just that they've got the grit for it? They're they're ambitious. They're they they were willing to lean in. Like what is it that allowed them to turn these, in some cases, very massive uh, uh, shifts into something better for them? Yeah, I mean, I would I would caveat that. I would say they all grew from their change experiences. Uh. In all in not all cases did they end up better off from a change that they inspired. And I'll, I'll give a concrete example in a moment. And I think, I think that's actually an important thing to share as well. Like it was so important to me on a slight change of plans that we not try, try to tie up people's change stories as like a present with a bow on top and being like, and now mm-hmm. they're better off, but to actually appreciate the full complexity of the change experience and the life experience and the fact that some aspects of their life might be worse off as a result. But um, to your point, I do think the common theme among all the guests, and I think this is a universal aspect of humanity, um, is that we are by nature storytellers. We like building narratives about our lives. We like uh, we like believing that, um, and you know, I don't believe things happen for a reason, but we like believing that things happen for a reason because it helps us make sense of the things that happen in our lives, especially unexpected events. And what that can mean is, you know, whatever your spiritual or religious beliefs or philosophies on things happening for a reason, I think the same thing is true for everyone, which is when something happens, it is our instinct to try and find meaning in it and in some way to grow from that experience, to learn something new, to make sense of it. And that's the common trait I think I've seen across all my guests, which is this deeply human desire to not want to see things as fully random, to try to appreciate um, that there could be an opportunity that's lying dormant that could be extracted from a terrible event, for example. Um, so let me give you two concrete examples of stories that really surprised me where they ended up better off in some ways and not others. So, and it really taught me something new about how I should even be compartmentalizing, categorizing change in the first place. So I had this conversation with a young woman named Elna Baker. Um, her lifelong mission was to become thin. She believed that if she could just become thin, all of her problems would go away. She would be able to live her dream life and every door would open for her. And she did it um, through extreme, terrible measures. Um, she ended up losing close to 100 pounds in five and a half months. And for a while, she did believe that she was living her dream life. Um, she she noted that she felt things were coming more easily to her. She was going on all these dates, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then she suddenly started to realize that it was having all of these unintended negative consequences in her life, all these spillover effects, that she was becoming a worse person, she was more superficial. Interestingly, she was more self-conscious than she had been before. She was less willing to be bold and speak up for herself and advocate um, for people in the way that she used to. And so she was maintaining this fiction somehow that like losing weight was almost like walking through a mirror where everything about Elena was going to stay fixed through this transition. And the only thing that was going to change was her weight. Um, But in actuality, change does not happen in a vacuum. It has all kinds of spillover effects. And approaching change with humility and understanding that a change that you think might have a positive impact may in fact have a negative one and vice versa is really important. Um, So her experience was understanding, wow, I was solving 
totally the wrong problem. Turns out I just wasn't happy. Um, and I thought this was going to be the instrument and the vehicle to getting there. But actually, this whole experience made me like more cynical about the world, in some ways addicted to changing parts of myself. Uh, it had all sorts of downsides. But to your point, she does feel that she's grown from the experience overall, and that it's forced her to really dive into her emotions and seek out therapy and, and become a better person um, through, through those sorts of means. Um, on the flip side, I talked to a guy named Scott, who uh, is a cancer researcher by profession and, and a total health nut. So if there's research showing something works out there, he's done it. Um, he, you know, intermittent fasting, high intensity interval training, veganism, he adds turmeric and chia seeds to his food. Um, and then during quarantine last year, he receives a stage four cancer diagnosis that requires wow. that he get his leg amputated, uh, a, a vertebra removed from his spine and, you know, part of his tibia removed. And this is Scott's worst nightmare come true. And, um, you know, he had spent an entire adult life trying to avoid what he refers to as diminishment. And yet here he is in this situation where he's facing a life or death situation and he's seeing his body uh, rebel against him. And it was so fascinating, Greg, because like, again, I'm talking to him while he's doing inpatient chemo at MD Anderson. He packed up his bags in California, moved his entire life over there for surgeries and, and uh, treatment. And he said, you know, I feel like I've more or less achieved the same happiness levels I had before. Like, sure, the lows are worse. I'll give you that. But the good moments are just as good. And that was so powerful for me because he surprised himself with his own resilience. And he said, if I had known that I would respond in this way psychologically to getting a cancer diagnosis, maybe there was never a reason for me to be as fearful of it in the first place. And I just, again, I, I'm, it's stirring for me to even repeat that back, but Elna's story and Scott's story taught me that I would now give the same advice to a person whether or not they were going through an expected or an unexpected or a willed or an unwilled change, which is we need to approach change with a very open mind, with a profound amount of humility, because we will not respond in the ways that we think. We think we have a full understanding of ourselves, but actually that understanding is based on every data point we've collected up until that point in time, right? There's other parts of ourselves, mm -hmm. there's other reactions that sometimes can only be tapped into in an in acute moment. Uh, of something. And I think um, Ellen and Scott's story just reinforced to me how important it is that we kind of audit ourselves as we go through different change experiences. So Maya, I have one last question for you here. But before I do that, uh, the podcast is called A Slight Change of Plans. Could you tell us where we can find it? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and it's just, oh, I love talking about it because it's my total passion <laughs> project. I'm kind of obsessed with podcasting. Uh, but yeah, it's called A Slight Change of Plans. Um, you can find it on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find your podcasts. And the one thing I love about this show is that it does feel really timeless. Like these stories um, are the kinds of stories that I believe will have resonance today, but they can also have resonance in 10 years from now. So I like to think of it as a, as a bingeable series. Um, if you're looking to explore change on any given road trip. <laughs> and I would 100% agree with that as someone who is a, a new listener, uh, phenomenal production, phenomenal quality and, and the guests and conversations, uh, they stand out in a sea of, of, uh, not so great podcasts. Well, thank you so much for saying that, Greg. I really appreciate it.
Of course. So my last question for you, um, you have earned a PhD, you uh, work at Google, you're the global director of behavioral science, you founded the White House behavioral sciences team, you're a Rhodes Scholar, you've served as an advisor at the White House, the UN, uh, and uh, the list keeps going. Um, what aren't you good at? Oh, gosh, the, let, me, let me put it this way. We only see the numerator uh, when it comes to what someone's done in their life. We don't see the denominator. Um, <laughs> I, I had so many things that I wished uh, I was good at that I did not uh, did not thrive at. So I remember in high school, I discovered Bollywood and realized that my dream was actually to become a Bollywood backup dancer. Um, mm -hmm. That didn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, I'm obsessed with Taylor Swift and... Um, and singing singer songwriting stuff can't write a song for shit um i also wanted to be a backup violin player for her reach out to her team that didn't go anywhere <laughs> anyway i give these lighter stories but of course there are so many things um uh that i i'm just not talented at and i think part of my life has just been figuring out where that optimal intersection is between some degree of natural aptitude and passion, because uh, they don't always align. There have been many things I've been deeply passionate about, but I just suck at it. So hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> I love that. Dr. Maya Shankar, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. It was so fun to have this chat with you, Greg. It was phenomenal to have you. And for those of you listening, thank you for spending time with us. And as always, remember that all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take every day. Every day.